Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can come together around your word and be transformed. And I thank you, Father God, that the words that I speak this morning would be of you, more of you and less of me. Be glorified this morning. And I ask, Father God, no matter where people are at, no matter what's going on in people's lives, that they will be encouraged and transformed by the power of your word. In Christ's name, amen. This morning, we're going to continue to look at the parables of Jesus. And we have two this morning, and they go together, so we're going to look at them together, even though they are two different parables. And to do this really well, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to be in Matthew 13, but there's some background we need. Remember that at this time of the ministry of Jesus, the disciples had gained a basic understanding of what Jesus was teaching. They, they would have understood Jesus as the Messiah at, at some level. They, they knew him as the, the promised king. They were looking at him as, as the promised king who was to come and, and establish the kingdom. Most Jews at that time believed the kingdom would come in, in fantastic power, in glory, and, and along with cataclysmic events. There would be public displays of power and glory. That's what was expected. The king would come, and, and people who were evil would be punished, and Israel would become triumphant over all who oppressed her. That was the expectation that was ingrained in, in Judaism. So on the one hand, the disciples knew Jesus was the Messiah. But on the other hand, Jesus kept acting differently than what they believed the king would act. Jesus didn't confront the hated Romans. There was no great event of power and celebration. And because of this, the disciples struggled with the idea of the kingdom. There was this constant kind of struggle because of their expectations. We can get an idea of, of some of this from what Luke records for us in Acts chapter 1. He's writing of events after the resurrection. Let's look at Acts chapter 1, 1 through 8. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he, ha he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God." Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. 
in this message, Jesus has told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come. We see in that passage that the disciples were still looking for this great event of the earthly kingdom being established. And in a way, they weren't comprehending God's plan. A little bit later, when the day of Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit descends and begins to abide within the hearts of true believers, and the church age begins. And it was after Pentecost that the disciples understood the kingdom was first to be established in the hearts of believers. There wasn't going to be this big, huge thing, that party and celebration and cataclysmic events. God's kingdom in this age, the church age, is made up of only those who are true believers. But as we've seen in the other parables, the kingdom is in the world and surrounded by unbelievers. So the, God allows the unbelievers and the believers to coexist, so to speak. This was God's plan. And His plan was designed for reaping. This time of the church would be a time of, of reaping. And it would be a time of rejection. This is the time that we live in. The message of the king and his kingdom is real and powerful and glorious. But the message is often rejected. Even though Jesus has come, died, risen from the dead, and been victorious, people still reject him. The parable of the sower and the parable of the tares, they teach us about this rejection. In the parable of the sower, there's three different soils that don't produce fruit. In the parable of the tares, believers and unbelievers are mixed together until judgment. The disciples wanted to know what to do with those that rejected Christ. How to continue with what Jesus had begun. The reality is that the world around us, the world in general, rejects God. But along with that reality is Jesus is King. He is sovereign over the earth, but he allows this, this, this time, this time of rejection to occur. The disciples wanted the kingdom to be established, and they had in their minds how that would happen. But Jesus was leaving them, and there was, there was no great event establishing the kingdom. Jesus was going to ascend into heaven, and the disciples didn't know really how that was going to look. Along with that, persecution had already begun, especially from the Jews. So how will the kingdom come if the king goes away? They were perplexed. There were also so few of them. And there seemed to be so many of those who were opposed to Christ. This is why Jesus gave them the two parables that we look at today. So turn with me to, to Matthew 13, beginning in verse 31. Jesus says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, 
But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. These two parables teach the kingdom will grow from extremely small beginnings and it will grow in influence. Jesus uses another agricultural illustration to begin with. That first parable this, uh, today, he, he's talking about a man planting mustard. Mustard was, it a, was a very important crop. It was mainly used for its oil. And Jesus says something difficult there. He says that mustard is, is smaller than all other seeds. And so this statement, we need to clarify this because the critics of the Bible have argued using this passage that the Bible's not true and unreliable. It's easy for us to find seeds that are smaller than mustard seed. So why would Jesus say this? But the answer is, is actually not very complicated. In verse 32, um, in the NASB, it says it a little bit differently in other versions, but it says, when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and become trees. And that's very important. Garden plants is from the, the Greek word meaning vegetable or edible plant. Jesus is talking about what the first century culture would have been planting to eat. He's not talking about all plants, all seeds known on the planet of all the plants available. He's talking about culturally those that the people would grow as crops. The seed being sown was a crop. And when we understand the context and the culture, the, the vocabulary, the mustard seed is the smallest seed. Additionally, when the word seed is used in the New Testament referring to plants, it always is used as an agricultural meaning. It's, it's used in that agricultural setting. This is, he's talking about crops. There's been research done that shows that the principal crops being grown when Jesus told this parable were barley, wheat, lentils, and beans, all of which have larger seeds than mustard. So when you put it within that context, Jesus was right. And the criticism is, is there also for saying that mustard becomes a tree. It, it's not technically a tree, but... Mustard plants naturally grow to seven or eight feet in height, and there are sources that record mustard plants as high as 15 feet. Jesus isn't talking about a huge oak tree. He's using mustard as an illustration. Mustard gets big enough to have similar properties of trees. The point isn't the tree part. It's, it's that Something small produces something large. When he refers to the, this as being like a tree, the, the branches in mustard plants, they, they harden, and they become strong enough for birds to nest in them. So the people 
who heard this parable firsthand. They heard it from Jesus. They didn't go away thinking, that Jesus guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Instead, because it was part of their culture, their understanding, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and it made sense to them. Mustard illustrated the bigger truth that something large begins with something small. This was a common idea in Judaism. In that Jewish culture, they used mustard seed as a comparison for the size of various things. Like they would compare a drop of blood to the size of a mustard seed. They sometimes would use the size of a mustard seed for a small breach in the Mosaic law. They would sometimes look for blemishes that were as small as a mustard seed on an animal that they were hoping to use for a sacrifice. So this was a common way of thinking. Jesus uses this elsewhere. In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus uses uses it in in what, what really we would know as a proverb. Matthew 17, 20, and he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say this mountain move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. The idea is that a little bit of faith can do really big things. The parable of the mustard seed teaches that the kingdom of God because that's what Jesus is is talking about, will start small and grow. Jesus was, was teaching, speaking to a small group of believers. They were also surrounded by Jews and Gentiles that re- rejected Jesus. God's plan was to plant the seed and watch the kingdom grow which it has. We could, we, we could call the day of Pentecost the beginning of the kingdom. We could, we could say that that's the beginning of the church age. And on that day, there were only 120 that were gathered. And if you compare that to the population of Jerusalem or to the Roman Empire, that was a very small group of people. And when Jesus spoke these two parables, there may have even been fewer believers. It's possible that there were maybe around 12 that heard that parable that were believers. It would have been an encouragement then to hear God's plan for the kingdom growing like mustard. And they would have understood that language. So the first parable is about something small growing into something large. The second parable is very similar, and you have to take these both together. In verse 33, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, the most common leavening in the history of making bread is yeast. The yeast of the first century was was very possibly not really collected, collected, but it was found on berries or grapes, possibly off of some barks of trees. It It was naturally occurring. 
So the yeast was gathered and, and it was added to, to water and some source of sugar. So many think that it was berries or grapes. It was very easy to do. And the yeast begins to, to grow and, and it produces CO2, which is what then causes the dough to rise. And when the dough was, was, was rising, you've got to a certain point and, and the dough is all active and it's growing. And any of you that have made bread, you know the process and, and you watch that and you get this little ball of dough and it just starts, it just starts growing. It's really pretty amazing. You'd reach a certain point and they would pinch off a piece of the dough. And they would set that aside and they'd keep it until the next day of baking. Because that little, little pinch of dough has active yeast in it. It's growing and it's active. And so the next time, they would take that little pinch of dough and they'd stick it into a bigger piece of dough, a bigger mix. And it would have the effect on the dough. We might call it sourdough today. Now, think about what Jesus is saying. How does this fit with the first parable? The woman hid the leaven in three pecks of flour. Three pecks of flour would have made a lot of bread. So this lesson also has the idea of something small becoming something large. But there's another lesson here. In the second parable, it's also teaching about influence. The difficulty that we have sometimes is that leaven has almost universally been understood and, and made to be understood as a symbol of evil. But that's, that's not, it doesn't work. That would make no sense in this parable. Because Jesus is using leaven, he says, to represent the kingdom of heaven. Then leaven can't represent evil. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with Scripture. Leaven itself, all through Scripture, was not evil. Scripture uses leaven as an analogy of influence. When Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, in Luke 12, 1... He was teaching that the hypocrisy and the false teaching of the Pharisees affected the same way as leaven. So the evil with the Pharisees was their hypocrisy and their false teaching. The analogy was that their hypocrisy and their false teaching permeated who they were and influenced who they were. Their hypocrisy permeated everything they did. In Galatians 5, 9, we see another use of, of leaven. It's used of legalism. And in 1 Corinthians 5, leaven is used of immorality. In both of those passages, the leaven isn't the evil. In Galatians, the evil is legalism. In 1 Corinthians 5, the, 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 the evil is immorality. Leaven could be immorality, hypocrisy, legalism. Or it could be the kingdom of God. Anything that influences, anything that permeates a person's life. That's the reason leaven is used. It's only an illustration of what influences. 
You can't take leaven and give it an absolute theological meaning of evil. You must use it as an analogy of what permeates, what influences. And this is exactly what, the, what Christianity, what the church age, this is exactly what the kingdom of heaven has done. Think about this. Why is it that people hate Christianity? Why, why do people struggle with, with Christians and the Bible and churches? It's because of influence. Christianity influences those outside of the church by demonstrating their utter lostness, their moral failure, and their spiritual death. But it also influences the world by the gospel, which is the solution to sin and immorality. The kingdom of God is good and powerful and able to transform any sinner. There is no sin. I want you really to hear this. There is no sin that the power of God's kingdom cannot change. That's influence. And this is the meaning of the leaven in this parable today. We have in these two parables two vitally, vitally important lessons then that encourage us as the church and encourage us as believers. First, the kingdom of God began small and has grown. There was a very small start. It was God's plan, His kingdom, big results. Let's start with the day of Pentecost. 120 disciples. And now, according to some numbers I saw from Gordon Cromwell University, as of 2019, an estimated 2.5 billion people identify themselves as Christians. Now, we know that maybe some are and some aren't. That's not our, that's, let's not make a mess out of that. Christianity is huge compared to the 120. And think about the influence. Aid to the poor. The end of slavery in most of the world. The improved value of women in society. The formation of beneficial governments like, like our democracy here in the United States, which is strongly based on Christian values. The educational system that we hold with high esteem. That, that system was begun with Christian values and thoughts. All you have to do to understand some of the influence of, of this age, the church age, is to make a comparison between the countries influenced by the kingdom of God and countries that are not influenced by the kingdom of God. See how people are treated and what kind of life they lead. The world has been leavened by the church, leavened by believers. There was a small beginning. He began with 12, actually he began with 2, and then there was more, and then there's 12, so, and then there's 120, and, and on it goes. The world has been radically changed, and influence, and growth continues. 2.5 billion, that's amazing. And there are somewhere over 430,000 full-time missionaries scattered all over the world. One example of this is, it's very hard for us to know for certain, but, but there is an estimate of 1.5 million house churches meeting in China. 
That's a lot of influence in one of the countries that is most opposed to God's kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's leaven. That's starting small and growing big. Do you realize that 99% of the world's population have all or part of the Bible in their own language? That's huge. That's leaven. That's influence. In spite of the weeds, the poor soil, the persecution, the birds eating the seeds, the kingdom continues to grow. The mustard plant continues to grow. And the leaven continues to influence and permeate this planet. You and I have tremendous influence. The believers that are here on the planet today have tremendous influence in the world. The main reason is because we are connected to the body of Christ. We are the church. We're the kingdom of God. God made made this extremely clear that this was going to happen. Think about this carefully and and put the two together. Put these parables together with what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, the rock, okay, small rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. There is nothing that can stop the growth of the church and there is nothing that can stop the influence of the church. What we also know from Scripture is that the day will come when God's kingdom will be known from east to west, north to south. Let's finish this morning by turning to Revelation 11.15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The king is coming. All glory to the king. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That you have saved us, you've, 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 you've rescued us from darkness, and you've placed us into the body of Christ, the church. And I thank you, Father God, that there is no force possible to stop your church. Father, help us as your believers, as your followers, to live in this this overwhelming rejoicing that we belong to something that's going to continue to grow and have massive influence, that we are a part of what you established and you will bring to pass. Father, thank you. Thank you for the work of your son. And Father, for those who don't know your son, I ask and I plead, make a decision for Christ. Come to Jesus. Be a part of the the kingdom of God. Don't put it off. Glory to you, Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. We love you forever. Amen.